So, how's it felt to uh, connect with your voices and personalities and who you are again? For some, it's really great. Oh, wow, isn't this exciting? And for, for others, it's quite common that it takes some adjusting. <clears throat> And so, first I just want to say some words about these next few days and then more general thoughts about uh, bringing the practice into our whole life. Uh, First, as has been said, you are really wide open. It's like the the armoring, the layers of of armor have uh, peeled off one by one, which is really beautiful. And that's part of the process to, to be able to get in touch with who you are inside. It means some of the crust has to kind of uh, uh, loosen. And because you are wide open, now going back into a busy world, uh, there's more sensitivity, much more sensitivity. So just to really take care with that, and um, you might, uh, an image that I find helpful is like I'm a baby just going into the world and like a baby, wide-eyed and open, sometimes the world is wondrous, wow, and sometimes it's too much, oh, oh. And so if you go through um, mood swings or energy swings, it's really quite natural. You're not doing anything wrong. You're right on schedule as you go through those ups and downs. You know. It's just when you, when you think that, oh, well, I've spent eight days getting clear and open and centered, and then you find yourself all over the map or you know, quite contracted, the mind says, oh, what did I do wrong? Or I've lost it. And it's not that you've, lost your understandings, but the state of that openness in this very protective, supportive environment um, changes like everything. And so, like I was saying yesterday, it's letting go gracefully. It's not about holding on to the concentration or mindfulness. If you think, oh, that's how I should be now, like I was on my last sitting on the last day, um, it'll be very painful. So just let go and be with things as they really are. And particularly for these next few days, um, even more important than the, the mindfulness in every moment, remember the, the kindness, remember the non-judging, because you'll see a lot more. You know, Like I said yesterday, you'll see all the ways that you lose it or that people around are acting out of confusion. Uh, and it's humbling, but you also see all the beauty. So that's that's the good news too. Mm-hmm. These next few days, also, I find it uh, helpful to just um, know how to nourish yourself. You know, you've put in some good work, and you deserve kindness. And when you find your system getting overloaded, uh, it's fine to just take a break, you know, whether it's just being quiet, finding a quiet surroundings. Uh, if you're at work, there's always the bathroom stall, you know, and just, you know, okay, let me collect myself. But uh, if you're at home, you know, you might sit a bit to just process all the energy as you're finding yourself getting overstimulated or um, soaking in a hot bath or putting on some some music or going out in nature, getting some space, just to monitor yourself for that. Okay, then as far as after you've kind of settled back into your routine, I thought I'd say some words about um, keeping this going. Really what you touch on a retreat is so wonderful and so um, powerful 
just to see what it's like to be here in the present and to be honest with yourself and with reality. Uh, that is the practice from the beginning to the end. Being here in this moment, seeing what's actually going on and not getting lost in your ideas or, or confusions about what you think should be happening. So from this point on, it's all a game of reminders, just remembering what you know or remembering that attitude of meeting this moment with wisdom and kindness. So there's a number of different ways that you can remind yourself what you know. The, the first that I highly recommend is having a regular sitting practice, which might seem kind of easy and, oh, sure, I've been sitting, you know, six or seven hours during the day and walking, you know, that will be a snap. If this is new to you, you know, it will probably not be a snap. It's really, it takes a great commitment. I remember when I, I first heard these teachings you know, back in Colorado in 1974, this guy was talking, you know, and I said, I remember going home saying, okay, I really got it. I was so excited, like, there really is a possibility, you know, there was of not being run by my neurotic patterns. You know, that was very exciting to me. And I figured, okay, I got it. But I tried to get around the sitting part. You know, do I really have to do that? And uh, as much as I tried, you know, I couldn't. Because it's the busyness, the momentum of the world is so intense Everything is conspiring to pull you out of yourself and to just remember that there's a whole inner world to reconnect and that this is where peace is to be found is, uh, cannot be overestimated. So to take some regular time and rather than sitting because it's the right thing to do, it's the spiritual thing or you should be doing it, sit because it's a gift that you're giving yourself. And if you have trouble giving yourself a gift, thinking, think of it as giving everybody you know a gift because they will appreciate it if you do. Um, and as far as how long to sit or you know, what's the, the, the best time, see what's right for you. Just trust yourself. I have uh, an agreement that, that Joseph suggested a number of years ago that I've taken to heart as my minimum sitting practice that every day I will get into the posture. And even if it's midnight and I'm just about to put my head on the, the pillow, if I realize it's been a busy day, I haven't sat, I'll just sit up there in bed for a few moments. Usually it's, once you get into the posture, it's oh, this is really nice. The hard part is getting there. So you might experiment with that. And if you can find a, a regular place and a time, then it'll be that much more helpful because you know, you'll, plan it, you'll plan your day around it instead of just kind of squeezing it in. But do that. You'll notice the difference when you don't. That was what I started seeing. Wow, when I didn't, then you know, I just was operating in a different quality. So uh, if you've forgotten or haven't done it for two days or a week or a few weeks, don't think, oh, well, that's, you know, I, maybe I'll get back to it sometime. I'm just too scattered to, to sit or it's been too long. You know, start it right now. That's the beginning, just like starting, starting the meditation right now. Um, and don't beat yourself up for having, you know, gone astray. There's a, a line from, from Trungpa Rinpoche that has stayed with me. He says, um, if there's a conflict between you and the Dharma, chances are the problem doesn't lie with the Dharma. Yeah. <laughs> and what we can do is use the Dharma, our greatest friend, as a source of guilt 
and frustration. Oh, my Dharma practice is really awful. And then you feel badly about yourself. Then you've lost something so precious to you. So give yourself that regularly. Then there are other things that you can do to support that mindfulness practice besides the formal sitting. And I think it's really important to think of the word practice not just about sitting in uh, meditative posture. Really, it's all practicing waking up. So you might broaden your definition if your sitting practice doesn't seem like you, know, you, you think it should. Everything you can do and there are different supports. Eating, before you eat a meal, just to pause for a few moments and know you're about to eat, and maybe chew the first bite mindfully, tasting it. It's like you're inserting a few more moments in the day. Or walking down the street, or, or down, down the path, you know, just as a, as a game, you know, just to see how present you can be when you think of it. You know. You'll have plenty of time for daydreaming, I guarantee you. But every now and then, if you remember, oh, let's just be here with the walking. Uh, it's really wonderful because in a moment, you see that all the stories going around are just creations of mind and you can come right back to here. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh has a great suggestion, has many great suggestions, and I recommend you check out some of his, his writings. Uh, using the telephone has been very helpful for me because my phone rings a lot. And if you just find it an intrusion, you know, the phone rings, yeah, who is it? You know, that's a whole different way than using it to uh, aid you in your practice. He suggests letting it ring a couple of times and using it as a bell of mindfulness. Ah, there you are, probably lost in some thought. Ah. Here I am. Take a few mindful breaths. You'll be much more likely to answer the phone and realize that it's the Dharma or the Buddha that has just come to, uh, to awaken you. And when you answer, hi, it's very, very different than, yeah, what do you want? You know? And when you answer hi, you'll probably get that response back. You know? So you can just play around different ways to wake up. You know, whether it's reminders, breathe on your desk, or inspiring pictures. So the sitting practice and the different ways to, to formally be present. Think of other things, a daily activity. For years, shaving has been my practice time. And sooner or later, somewhere in that shave, I remember, oh yeah, shaving, that's what's happening now. You might take a daily activity and experiment with that. Besides the, the formal mindfulness, there are other supports for practice. I'll mention one other thing before, uh, before I move on, and that is taking a minute during the day a few times is a very useful practice. I found it very, very helpful. If you find yourself scattered, just stopping for a moment and taking a few mindful breaths. You know, it's not that hard to be mindful for a few breaths. And in a moment, you can just kind of re reconnect and, and drop down. So if you can have it connected in your mind, wow, I'm really scattered, time to just come back to myself rather than, oh, I'm really scattered, I could never be mindful now. Just, ah, okay, time to reconnect and that's helpful. And also within the sitting, as you sit after it's done, you put in your time. Don't judge how it's going. If you judge the quality of your sittings, it's going to be a very discouraging experience, especially if you compare them to your clearest sitting on a retreat. You know, again, from, from Joseph, very beginning, so helpful. Just put in your time. It's like, okay, I get my butt on the cushion and let the Dharma take care of the rest. But besides that, some other things to do. And I want to share with you some thoughts the Buddha had when your practice is not so strong. And this is from a, a, a discourse about this. Um, he was with 
uh, a new practitioner, a new monk named Magia. And the two of them were all alone. Uh, and uh, Magia went out on uh, alms rounds and uh, came across this great mango grove that he thought would be super for practicing, for meditating. And he got very excited and he returned and he said um, that he wanted to go and, and sit. I'll just read a little bit. It's, it's really, uh, I like it. While he was walking and wandering along the riverbank for exercise, he saw a charming and inviting mango grove. And he thought, this charming and inviting mango grove will serve for my practice for one who seeks the struggle, seeks to be liberated. If the Blessed One allows it, I shall come to this mango grove for practice. And he went to the Buddha and told him, the Buddha said, wait, Magia, we're still alone. Wait till you see some other, wait till another monk comes. Second time he asked, and he said, the Blessed One has nothing more left to do. You finished your, you, he has no need to confirm what he's already done, but we still have something left to do. We need to confirm what has, what has to be done. So please, can I go? He says, wait, Magia. But he asks the proverbial third time, right? And he says, since you say it, Magia, what can I say to you? It's time for you to do as you see fit. And Magia goes to sit to this great mango grove. Now, for almost all of the time he remained in the mango grove, three kinds of unwholesome thoughts occupied his mind. That is to say, thoughts of sense desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And it occurred to him, it's wonderful, it is marvelous, which is really way they have of saying, it's amazing. Here I am who've gone forth out of faith from the housewife into homelessness, and yet I'm harassed by these three kinds of unwholesome thoughts. He can't believe that his mind isn't clear, right? And he goes to the Buddha and he tells him what happened. He's like, you won't believe this, right? And the Buddha knew. And then he says, Magia, while the heart's deliverance is still unright, when you're having trouble quieting down and seeing clearly, five things lead to its ripening. What five? And here's his list of supports for meditation practice. First, a practitioner has good friends and companions. That's the first one. Having like-minded friends taking refuge in the Sangha, one of the three jewels is of inestimable value. It's so hard to do this alone. And when you have others who appreciate and value and support this as well, it makes all the difference in the world. And you can see the power of sitting here together, uh, what we can create. If you have good Dharma friends at home, whether it's a sitting group or even just one friend to sit with, it really makes a difference. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a sitting group, to start one, even if it's you and, and one other person. Um, I, would, I would guess, does Gaia House give out names of people in people's areas or to start a sitting group? Is that not done? Mm. So, um, I mean, this is done in, uh, in, in the States. You know, maybe we could it's possible to find people in your area to, to connect with. Um, when you're down, their inspiration can be a support and you can be that for them. You know, there's this, this exchange between the Buddha and Ananda. Ananda says, it seems, O Lord, having good friends is half of the holy life. And the Buddha says, as he usually does to his straight man, you know, not so, Ananda. Not so, Ananda. Having good friends is the whole of the holy life. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Find good friends. Come on retreat or go up to Amaravati if, if, uh, if there aren't other ways to connect. But I have a feeling that there are. Being with good books. You know, you might, your best friend might be just a good book on your table, on your night table, that every, every time you open up to it, it's just what you need to hear. 
Be Here Now was like that for me. It was a Bible for about three years. Just, okay, where's my message now? Or tapes. I've probably heard more Dharma talks in a car or in traffic jams than I have on retreat, and I've done a fair number of retreats. Just keeping on reminding yourself. And as I said the other night, when you hear it out there, the wisdom isn't out there. It's just reminding yourself, oh yeah, that's right. We just forget. So having good friends, the first. Secondly, a practitioner perfects their virtue, perfects their conduct, seeing fear in unskillful action, trains trains themselves by giving effect to the precepts of training. That is a protection. Not that you will be a saint and never make a mistake or act unskillfully, but to have a kind of respect for life, a sensitivity to life, where you're not causing suffering or harm to others, not only because it it feels good and people will appreciate it, but because it is, it brings about a sense of ease inside. It's a very pragmatic approach. If you want peace, don't cause suffering outside of yourself or to yourself. And if you listen carefully, you can start to know if you have a commitment to the precepts of not harming, not stealing, not causing suffering through sexuality, being skillful in speech, and not um, causing um, suffering or clouding the mind with intoxicants. And for each one, there's an investigation seeing what that means to you. Then it's easier to find a sense of peace inside. One of my favorite phrases from the teachings, the the Buddha talks about the bliss of blamelessness. It's wonderful when there's an ease because you're not in contention or you haven't hurt somebody else. So that's the second support. The third, one who finds at will or no trouble or reserve such talk as is concerned with the heart's release, with enlightenment, talk with not, not filled with greed, talk about peace, talk about virtue. These kinds of things create a support for Sangha. So he made a particular emphasis on right speech. Now to say a few words about right speech, since now you're starting again, we condition our minds tremendously by our words. And the, the traditional list of right speech is saying what's truthful, saying it in a kind way, in a pleasant way. You know, when you start talk, talking harshly, it just doesn't feel so good. If you're around somebody who curses a lot, I used to curse a lot when I was a young guy. I thought it was kind of cool, you know, but after a while it's just jarring on the mind. So saying what's truthful, pleasant speech, um, not gossiping or slandering people, just doesn't feel so good. And not engaging in frivolous talk. Now that's open to wide degrees of interpretation for for me. I mean I think football is not frivolous talk. And you can't just, you can't be profound all the time, you know, <laughs> having an ongoing Dharma discourse. A lot of times, it's just to say hi, you know, hi. You in there? I'm in here, you know. And whether it's talking about the weather or about uh, something on your mind or something that, you know, about life, it doesn't have to be a deep Dharma discourse all the time. Just see where your mind goes when you fill up the space. And a lot of times it is just filling up the space. If you can relax in that space and just say what really needs to be said 
and coming out of your heart and playing with, with the communication. That's helpful. And the main guidelines that those four come down to is saying what's truthful and what's useful. What's useful is a whole art that I'm learning all the time. What I find helpful to get in touch with is what is my intention for talking? Is it to be right? <laughs> is it to, to impress? Is it to control? Is it for just greater communication? And just getting in touch with your intention is really the key in all actions, but particularly in speech when you've got something difficult to share. Saying it in a way that other people, the other person can hear it and having skillful timing so that they can hear. And the less blame, probably the more you'll be heard. You know, if, if somebody's coming at you, you know, maybe you might think California style, just, I have something I want to share with you. you know. <laughs> can we, can I give you some feedback, you know? <clears throat> You're probably, if they dump on you, probably not going to ask for or look forward to more feedback from them. But if they say, there's been something that's on my mind, it's really been painful for me, and I feel this distance, and I don't want to feel that distance from you, and I really want to share, share this and have you and understand your reality and have you understand mine, you might have a better chance of it getting in, particularly if you're willing to understand their reality, where they're coming from. So, skillful speech. The fourth, practitioner is energetic in abandoning unwholesome things and giving effect to wholesome things. He is steadfast, persistent, and untiring with respect to wholesome things. Now, this is another way of thinking of the four right, of right effort, the four efforts, abandoning unwholesome states that have come guarding against unwholesome states that haven't come, developing wholesome states that have not yet come, and increasing wholesome states that are here. Basically, that means guarding against unwholesome states. Don't put yourself in temptation's way. The environment you keep makes a huge difference and impact. And if you find that you are, you know, trying to say, for, just as an example, you know, work on your, uh, on, uh, if you're on a diet, you don't want to be in a sweet shop, you know, like that. And it's extrapolating if you're trying to cool out from um, difficult uh, communications, then be around people who, uh, who can communicate wisely, just to remember when you can. So guarding against unwholesome states, when they've arisen, being mindful of them. And the wholesome states that have arisen, this is the thing I want to pay particular uh, attention to. When you have a wholesome state, like I mentioned the other night, I think it's really skillful to let yourself enjoy it and take it in. This is not just about seeing suffering everywhere. It's about feeling the goodness in life, too. And I'll quote from Ajahn Sumedho, who says, Sometimes in Theravadan Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty and goodness. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. <laughs> it's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and see how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. 
This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and in the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us, and in them we can feel joy. And that's delighting in it around us, in other people, and in ourselves as well. One of the main practices that I've had over these last 25 years is something that has come from um, Neem Karoli Baba, the, the Indian uh, guru in Ramdas's books. That was my original connection to, to the Dharma. And he so moved me, Maharaji as he's called, um, that it made me seek out all of this stuff. And that's how I got here. And one of his main instructions which I've taken to heart is keep on looking for the good in others. Even if you see all their flaws, all the ways that they blow it, you keep on going for the good because when you go for the good, that's what you'll see. That's what is brought out. Think of how you are when you're around somebody and they are seeing all your flaws and you know that that's what they're looking at. How do you feel? Flawed. <laughs> Awkward. Not connected. How different is it when you're around somebody who might know all your flaws but you get a sense that they see your beauty and there they are going right for that, your, your Buddha nature. What does it call out of you? That's what gets activated. Ah, yes. I mean, that's what's so great about being around somebody like the Dalai Lama. He sees that in everybody. Well, you can do that. And what you do has a tremendous impact on, your, on what you bring out of people. If you keep on looking for their good, that's what you'll draw out of them. And it's also what you'll see. Not to be naive and thinking, oh, everybody is, is wonderful, you know. But there's a place in all of us that wants to love, that wants to be accepted, that wants to um, feel like they belong. And you can create that for others. So, increasing the wholesome, seeing it on others, and particularly seeing it in yourself. We can be so hard on ourselves. We think, oh well, you know, I can see it in others, but I know who I really am. If that's your stance, you don't know who you really are. I'll just read this, this passage from Nelson Mandela's inaugural speech. Maybe you're familiar with it. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous, he says. Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So in a way, it's a bodhisattva act to see your own goodness and keep reconnecting with it. Because that's what you show others that they can do. The last of the supports, he says, fifthly, a practitioner has the understanding, the penetrating understanding of the rise and disappearance that leads to the complete ending of suffering. That is, reflecting on impermanence as you go through your life. 
because everything comes and goes and that deeper understanding the deeper you get it the freer you are because then there's not the holding on to the good and thinking oh gosh where did it go when it vanishes there's the appreciation of it right here and there's not pushing away the unpleasant oh no I can't open up to this because you just make it larger and you feed it energy and you get lost in aversion rather than okay this is what's happening it won't be here forever but let me learn from it right now while it's here so these are the five supports for practice good companions virtue good speech skillful speech increasing the wholesome and decreasing the unwholesome and reflecting on impermanence I'll say just a few more words and then turn it over retreats are very very helpful every time you do this you learn something new so it's not like oh yeah I did it now I got the idea it's each time is an adventure is a journey that goes deeper and deeper and deeper and it's such a special situation and environment keep this end of the exploration going if you found that it was at all useful and probably if you're still here by this point you did otherwise you would have gone it's quite magical and mysterious what we touch here and it becomes the reference point for living our lives for playing in our lives and finally having an attitude of gratefulness of gratitude I find a great support for practice we are all so blessed incredibly blessed it's amazing karma that we all share here you know like I was saying that uh, neck deep in grace we're all neck deep in grace think of how many people in the world are living in fear right now or how many are living um, without enough to subsist on or don't know where their dinner is going to be or if there will be for them or their children and those that are in good circumstances think of how many of them think the game think happiness is about getting more and more and more more than the next guy anyway and being successful that way and think of how few have good circumstances and the opportunity and inclination to practice the Dharma in whatever form to really see the truth to see that there's another kind of happiness so reflecting on if nothing else that blessing in your life and all the other blessings that you do have when I think of that it gives me a a sense of responsibility that I want to make the best of this opportunity both in developing myself and as a gift to the world because the world has enough greed hatred and delusion it can use a bit more kindness and clarity and, and generosity so that feeling of gratitude kind of completes the circuit with all the blessings that we have to close I'll just read this passage from Shanti Deva as a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness it is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated 
the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. It's wonderful to feast with you and uh, let's keep feasting. It's been really great to be here. I've enjoyed it thoroughly and uh, really appreciate everybody so much. So, hope to see you again. Spirit Rock, IMS, wherever, on the Dharma Road. Thank you. Uh, the question was about the relationship between uh, forgiveness and compassion. I think they're quite intimately connected. Usually when we see or come into contact with a situation where somebody is doing harmful things, either to ourselves or to others. Our tendency is to react to the person and to the action. Right? And so we get unforgiving, because we get blaming or angry or outraged or whatever it is, whatever our particular reaction is. There's a whole other level at which we can from which we can see or understand the harmful actions that happen in the world. And that is from understanding the ignorance out of which that action comes. Why do people do harmful things? Because in doing harmful things, they're actually, as well as harming others, they're harming themselves. Why? Why would anybody do that? We do it because of ignorance, of not seeing clearly. You know, and as you've probably seen this week, we're lost in the ignorance of forgetfulness, of not knowing what's happening a lot. So it's not just out there, it's within ourselves as well. When we are responding to the ignorance, what is the response to ignorance? Is it, you stupid ignorance? No, the response to ignorance is the feeling of compassion Okay, how can I help awaken myself or this other person from the ignorance? How can we bring greater wakefulness, greater understanding? The response to ignorance is compassion. The response to the action itself may be anger or outrage or lack of forgiveness. Did you follow? But it really takes, because our immediate response you know, is, is often this reactivity of blame or, or ill will. It really takes seeing that and being open to that in oneself and then dropping down to see what's underneath. And it takes a lot of mental poise because we can get so hooked into the personality dynamics. You know, how could that person do this? I mean, it's so easy, and it takes a real, you know, it's a certain kind of maturity that doesn't get totally caught up in that and says, okay, what's really going on here? And when we see the ignorance giving rise to the action, it's a very different relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, the question was about when you're sending matter to an image of a person, are you really sending it to the image or to the person? You know, and if it's to the image, it seems like it would have some limited effect and value. I think it's more that we use the image as a support for developing the feeling. 
And so when the loving feeling is there, that's the energy that's being generated. And it's like everything in its path gets touched by it. So it's not actually that you're sending the loving, the loving feeling to a concept. The candy store. <laughs> The question was about, on the one hand, trying to avoid unwholesome states and situations which cause it, and on the other hand, the value of playing the edge and working with the difficulties. I think it's really all a question at any particular time of your strength, your inner strength and balance and willingness to look, whether the situation is workable or not at that time. Because if you're in a situation where a lot of unwholesome states are coming up and you're overwhelmed by them, like that monk, and the Buddha knew that that was going to happen to the monk, and that's why he said, wait. He was just overwhelmed. He didn't have the inner strength to deal with it. And so it was not useful. He was just, he was just lost in it. But there are many times when we do have the real interest and ability to explore an edge. And it's not that we, it's not that you go looking for situations where you can experience hatred. You know, so on the one hand, enough difficulties are going to come in one's life that you don't really need to go looking for them. But in terms of playing the edge, of pushing the edge, it's really where fear is limiting us from doing something wholesome. Yeah, so that's, that's a very interesting edge to play. Okay, can I really be with this fear, work with it, and see my way through it in order to accomplish something worthwhile? Um, and that depends on, again, whether the interest is there and the, the inner balance is there. So I don't really see a conflict between the two. <laughs> you found your teacher. <laughs> several levels because the level you're talking on really is the level of the expression of physical energy in movement, in activity. Uh, and I think it's fine that there are times, for example, when it's really appropriate just to do fast walking back and forth. And it's fine. The The form of the retreat would suggest that you do it in as mindful a way as possible, rather than just a very physical exertion where you're blowing off the energy and you're not really developing the mindfulness. That's not so helpful. But to do something uh, quite active could be fine, you know, and it would be finding, finding an appropriate form for that. Um, 
But I think there's a deeper level here because actually sitting still can be tremendously energizing. You know, and as we go deeper in our practice, we really connect with the whole mind-body as an energy system. And it gets amazingly activated. You're sitting completely energized, alert. That energy, though, has to be in balance with concentration. And I think that's really the deeper issue. It's not only the need to be more active. It's a question of, okay, how can this energy be contained in such a way that it comes into balance? And that's what I, you know, earlier uh, in the retreat I talked about balancing, that restlessness was the imbalance, too much energy for the container. So the energy is just kind of spilling over. What we need to do is make a bigger container to hold it. So on a more fundamental level, I think that's the issue. But in that process, you need to find ways of doing it. And some greater active movement could be one of the ways. But you can, and this is what happens in meditation, you can be completely energized in a very quiet mode. You know, where you're sitting or walking slowly and the energy is very high and very balanced. But that's what the practice is. It's learning that balance and developing the conditions which create it. So, I'd also like to just express my appreciation for your many efforts. It's a trip going inside. It's been a great week. It really has. (laughs) I missed the question? (laughs) In response to that question, I will give you my second favorite mantra after it's okay who knows <laughs> that, that was my res- my resolution to all and not so much questions like this <laughs> the great questions of the universe and rebirth and karma and all that who knows um, so we'll see it's certainly been a nice thank you for listening To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.